I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to be reading Jeremiah chapter 34 and chapter 35. It is a lengthy portion of reading for us, but we're going to be handling all of that this morning, uh, Lord willing. Jeremiah chapters 34 and 35, I will be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, all his army, all the kingdom of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, he shall burn it with fire. And you shall not escape from his hand, but will surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace, as in the ceremonies of your fathers and former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah and Jerusalem. When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them. That every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. But afterward... They changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return, whom they had set free, and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. Therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years let every man set free his Hebrew brother, who has been sold to him. And when he has served him six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me, nor incline their ear. Then you recently turned and did what is right in my sight, every one proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name. And every one of you brought back his male and female slaves, whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure, and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, You have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence and the famine. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the man who has transgressed my covenant, who has not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth. And I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes in the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life, and in the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah desolation without inhabitant. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jahazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habasaniah, sorry, his brothers and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, above the chamber of Masaiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. Then I set before the sons of the house of Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. 
But they said, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these, but all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days. So we, our wives, our sons, and our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor to have vineyard, seed, field, or seed. But we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up in the land that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans, for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord, the words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, and performed, are performed, for to this day they drink none, and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. I have also sent to you all my servants and the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now, everyone, from his evil way. Amend your doings and do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers. But you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them. But this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. And I have called to them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Well, this morning we move forward in the book of Jeremiah. <clears throat> Having concluded a section of Jeremiah that is focused on the last days, on the reward that is waiting for Israel, uh, and also for the nations in the Millennial Kingdom and then beyond. And we have seen a great time spending there in looking at what God has planned, that he is faithful, that while he has consequences for our decisions on the short term, that that does not preclude his love for his people and his desire for their good. And I think that is one facet of God within the midst of the judgment narratives and the woes of the prophets that we need to be reminded of occasionally. And Jeremiah does that. He has inserted that here. We then turn back now, away from that a little bit, back to the present for Jeremiah. Back to what was going on in the day. And so after we take a wonderful opportunity to peer into the future faithfulness of God, the plan of God, of heaven, of all that he has secured for us through Jesus Christ, uh, we still realize that we're not there yet. <laughs> uh, we haven't arrived there yet. He is faithful, and so because he has promised it, and because the one who has promised it is faithful, we know it to be true, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ, in that day. So we wait till that day, but while we're waiting, we realize that we're in today. And so it's appropriate that here Jeremiah, like many of the other prophets, flashes to that day and then comes back to their day uh, to give a word of encouragement that uh, this God who is about to lay a heavy hand on you um, is not in his nature a angry God. Um, that's not who, what defines him. You have incited him to anger. Uh, you have provoked him. 
And that's going to come out in these passages, that the way to ruin that future plan of God is to provoke him. And you do that by disobedience. And perhaps more provoking to God than the world disobeying him, who are largely ignorant of him, his truth and righteousness and justice, more provoking to God than those, we think those are going to be the real heathens, um, no, they're steeped in sin from birth and they uh, have creation and their own conscience, but they don't have the knowledge of the word, of the law, of God himself, of Jesus Christ. So those aren't the heaviest provokers. We are going to deal with those by the time we get to the end of Jeremiah. In fact, the last, what, five, six chapters of Jeremiah is all about Judgment on the nations, one after another, one after another, one after another. We're going to deal with all of the uh, nations around Israel and how God's going to judge them. That's coming. So it's not that God doesn't judge them because of their ignorance, uh, doesn't judge them because they haven't been exposed to the truth, but rather there is a more serious judgment for those of us who have. And that's going to be played out here in several chapters of Jeremiah that we're not dealing with people who are ignorant of what God wants. We're not dealing here with people who um, just forgot. We're not dealing with people that just lapsed into a habit of something and, and uh, didn't know what they are doing. We're not dealing with people who were never approached with the need to repent. We're dealing with a people in stubborn rebellion. And what Jeremiah wants to bring out, really the next few chapters, I believe, is the stubbornness of Israel. That facet of it. That God, even in giving message after message through various mechanisms and people, um, still finds that the people know that what he's saying is absolutely true. Oh yeah, that's true. But they don't want to put it into their lives. Sound familiar? Uh, I think a lot of times we can find ourselves in that condition. I know this is what God wants me to do. I know what I shouldn't be involved in that. I know I should be doing those things. And then we start making up excuses. And we don't find the excuses borne out here. They're not, they're not given any print, <laughs> if you will. Um, Jeremiah has no time. God has no toleration for them. And I think that's why they're absent from the passages before us. But we're going to find um, this attitude and this condition of Israel in the real time, um, even with the carriers and the forefathers of that period of deliverance and of ultimate salvation, um, these people are losing it. They've lost access to it. They've lost the claim to it. And they lose it in their own decisions to be stubbornly rebellious. And so while we talk about heaven and we uh, can paint verbal and mental pictures of it and we can imagine its wonders, uh, we still have to be gripped with the reality that we are in a place and time where we can jeopardize that by provoking God to anger, by disregarding him, his son, his prophets, his word, and live as we please. These two do not go together. You cannot claim heaven and live as you please. They are contradictory to one another. And that is what's going to be played out here in the, the next few chapters, not just today, but several weeks now. We're going to be seeing that Born out in the accounts given from different periods of kings. We're going to start off with Zedekiah. We're going to jump to Jehoiakim. And we're going to come back to Zedekiah next week. And we're going to be back and forth. We're going to see him in prison. We're going to see him in a dungeon. We're going to see him in all, all these historical places and accounts. We're going to even find Jeremiah's uh, assistant, his amanuensis, if you will, Baruch. And we're going to find him. And we're going to be engaged with him. And so we're going to find the princes of, e of Israel that are going to be on Jeremiah's side, and yet they're held accountable too. So we're going to find all these elements involved 
Um, and really what we have is a historical accounting of why did that generation lose it? And so while we have multiple kings, we really only have one generation. Um, one king served, what, about 10 years? Um, the other one just a few months. Uh, and so we have all those kings, those three kings involved in one generation. And we're going to find that they knew better and they chose not to pursue it. Now, when I start talking about kings and kingdoms, uh, most of you think of mature people. Um, and I want to just start off by reminding you that Zedekiah, when he became king, was a profound 21 years old. All right, you got to wrap your head around that. 20, you're not even allowed to run for president of this country until you're 35. So 21-year-old in charge, he reigned for 10 years, which means he reigned through his 20s. And, of course, that is kind of mature, I guess, compared to an 8-year-old king that they had earlier. Uh, but uh, we find that these are young men predominantly, and they have influences in their lives, and they have a chance to decide who they're going to listen to. And that's what it boils down to. Who are you going to listen to? And God asks the question, who are you going to listen to? And that's going to come out strongly, especially when we get to the second chapter. Before we go into our text, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, and we thank you for your word before us, your spirit within us, your people around us. And we pray that your word might go forth clearly, concisely, and powerfully and that we might receive it from you with humility to be ready to subject ourselves to your truth. We thank you for it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, Zedekiah has the army of Nebuchadnezzar surrounding the city. We're in deep, deep trouble. Um, he's trying to prop up the, in, the people, getting ready for this attack that's happening and is happening. It's not just the Babylonians. They have absorbed other armies as well. As they conquer people, they conscript into their own army from the people that they conquer. And so uh, Jeremiah takes the time to say, it wasn't just Babylonians out there. There was all kinds of hordes of people out there attacking the city. And in that condition, God sends him with a word to Zedekiah, young man in his 20s, saying, now listen, um, I'll give you in this city into the hand of Babylon. That's not going to change. The city's lost. And it had not a lot to do with your reign. It had to do with some other men's reigns before you. But the city is lost. But I'll keep you alive. You will not die in the battle. Um, there are other people that need punishment. I, we're going to take you to Babylon. You're gonna, it says you're going to die in peace. Uh, that is, you're not going to die violently in this case. Um, and so just basically surrender the city. There's nothing to defend here because I'm not defending it. And Zedekiah's response is a little bit interesting. And it, it, it's reminiscent, <coughs> excuse me, of Hezekiah. His response and the response of the people is to say, well, you know, we should do something appropriate to the law. And um, having heard this instruction, verses 1 through 7, especially 2 through 7, here's what's going to happen. Um, we find uh, that among all the things that God took account from, Jeremiah says, um, I appreciate the effort, but it's not going to resolve the problem. What's the effort that he did? Well, verse 8. It says, This word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them, that every man should set free his male female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. And so, what Zedekiah does is a little reminiscent of Hezekiah. What Zedekiah does, he says, all right, we're in a bad condition. Uh, there, our only hope is to get back to the law. 
And it worked for Josiah. It, it, it appeased God to the degree that God says, well, you've chosen to be righteous before me, so it's not going to happen while you're king, which is what God did with Hezekiah as well. While you're king, none of this is going to happen to you because he humbled himself, repented, turned to the Lord, and sought to live righteously. And so we see a little bit of that in Zedekiah, that he, he had that influence, and he goes, well, this is the year of Jubilee, so we are supposed to be setting everyone free, and we shouldn't have slaves. And so they implement something. Now remember, the basis of how long they are going to be in exile before they come back is based upon how many years of Jubilee they skipped that they didn't do what they were commanded to do. And so Zedekiah says, well, if that's a major element of God's displeasure with us, let's correct that. And the people all agree, yes, let's correct that. And so we're going to set all of our slaves free. And they set all their slaves free, all the Hebrew slaves, because it wasn't allowed to be kept. You were supposed to only have a Hebrew slave for six years. The seventh year, they set free. And the idea of slavery, um, and most of you are slaves, uh, is debt. They're paying off debt is really what they're doing. Um, they are selling themselves to an owner to pay off a debt, either a family debt or personal debt. Typically, that's what they are doing. Uh, and by the way, on the year of Jubilee, not only do you set your slaves free, you also release property that you bought from a Hebrew person. So you really are only leasing property um, when you buy it from another Hebrew person until the year of Jubilee. So if it's two years till then, you're only leasing it for two years, and the price is appropriate for that. Well, same thing with slavery. And so um, they would indenture themselves to pay off a debt. And the expectation was that no debt should last seven years. No debt. Because also, you're supposed to clear all your debt. And now, I got this thing. Let's see. I think some of the car loans now for an automobile. When I was younger, you're in the 20s, the longest automobile loan you get was four years. 48 months. And now they're going 72 and 96. It's scary. They're having car loans last longer than cars. Um, most of them, I don't think, are built to last that long. And so in the economy of God, no debt was to be longer than seven years. Seventh year, everything's forgiven. It's a good rule of thumb, by the way, for your life, is try to limit your debt so that you can pay it off in six or seven years. And by the way, uh, early on, when mortgages were started, the longest mortgage you could get in this country was, guess what? Seven years. And houses were very inexpensive. As mortgages lengthened, houses got more expensive because they could. So a little economic lesson there for you. Sounds good. We're going to obey God. Let's release all of our prisoners, prisoners, slaves, all of our Hebrew slaves, men and women. And that will show God that we are serious about obeying his word. What does this reveal to you about the people, the, the leadership of Israel? They knew what they should be doing. The first thing we found is that they knew the truth. It wasn't like the days of Josiah where they had lost track of the law and somebody finds it in the temple and says, oh, should we be keeping this? Yeah! And they read it and everybody finds that these people... We're just the next generation. This was his son. They knew the truth. They knew what they should have been doing all along. This wasn't ignorance. This wasn't because they weren't taught. This wasn't their parents' fault. Um, they knew the truth. They had access to it. And they recognized that they weren't keeping it, and they tried to correct it on a superficial level. We're going to do this. It's important to God. I'm going to release all of our Hebrew slaves and it's now liberty. And the king on down, all the way through society, exercises this. And then something happens that's not in our text. But we know it happened because of what it says at the end of the text. After they had done this, the Babylonian army leaves. Inexplicably. For a Jerusalemite. Inexplicably. I said that almost right. 
the Babylonian army leaves. They start heading south. They're going to cut off an Egyptian army that's coming up and stop them in their tracks. And so they get a little diversion. And so the Jerusalemites are like, hey, that worked. And, and then they realize, hey, i got to milk my own goat. I don't have a slave to do that anymore. i got to do my own laundry. i got to, you know, this isn't so great after all. And once the impending danger of the assault seemed to be gone, they recanted. They reneged on their covenant. And all those people they said they set free, they re-enslaved. And God says, aha, you've just revealed your heart. And now, here comes Jeremiah. You did this, note to, to show God that you knew the truth. And now, you have broken it. In verse 16, it says, Then you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Therefore, verse 17, wow, you know the truth. You even made a half-hearted attempt to keep the law, and now you have reneged on it. And that only affects your relationship with God, but look at what you're doing to these brother Hebrews. Now you're putting them back into slavery, and they're no longer allowed to live at their own pleasure. they got to live at your pleasure. And he says, therefore, because you've done this, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. I proclaim liberty to you, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. He says, because of this half-hearted, short-lived, almost pretense of obeying the law, you've profaned me even more. You've done more damage to my name because there is not any evidence in your hearts and in your lives that you really want to please me you just want to get out of hell free card. You want to get out of trouble. You don't really want to recognize me as the one who created you, sustains you, and has a future in store for you. You don't really want me. You just don't want trouble. And here we come into some uh, modern evangelism. And um, you know that I believe in evangelism. I struggled, though, with our presentation of people that all salvation is about is about getting out of hell. Because that's not what it's all about. That is one of the benefits, no doubt about it. It is about having a relationship with God where he cleanses us from our sin that we may have communion with him the way we were designed to. We were created in the garden to walk with the Lord every evening. And we destroyed it. And ultimately brought death upon ourselves. And the purpose of salvation is to deliver us from hell, yes, but ultimately to bring us into a right relationship with God. And God says, I'm going to turn their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. I will be their God. They will be my people. Um, no one's going to have to teach. All those things that Jeremiah talked about, this is what God wants. He wants this intimacy with us. That's what it means to be a little Christ, is to be one who has sharing intimacy with God, where I want to walk with him, and recognizing that that means I want to engage in righteousness and in service to him, knowing that he is a master that is extraordinarily benevolent, 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 and that he is one who calls himself my friend, my father. Um, he wants that intimacy. 
and he will have that reward for that. And this is what God desires. And yes, trouble can incite us to consider our ways, but ultimately, if all we're doing is praying a sinner's prayer because we are afraid of going to hell, we have missed most of the boat. And if that's the extent of our evangelistic appeal, no wonder people make claim to, well, I prayed this prayer and I got baptized in this tank so God can't send me to hell and I live however I want. Because we haven't adequately communicated what we're offering them is an intimate relationship with the God who made us and to whom we must give an accounting of our life one day. Whether you are righteous or unrighteous, you have to give an accounting of your life to him. He is your judge. Now, I got to ask you, would you rather your dad be the judge up there or some guy that you just offended in the parking lot on the way to court be your judge? I've always wondered what it's like to walk around the courthouse in like a judge's apparel. Is that like against the law? Can I get arrested for like impersonating a judge? Just to see how people treat you. Nobody wants to cross. He might be my judge. How are you going to act toward the guy who might be your judge in the parking lot? Oh, take my space, please. And that's the mentality we have to have. You're dealing with your judge. How do you want it to treat him before judgment day? Do you want to set him off? Do you want to get him angry? Do you want to uh, provoke him? Or do you want to have a friendship with him and have kindness and have please, please him? Sure. And so these people made this very shallow, half-hearted effort to please their judge. The trouble went away, so they thought, well, we didn't really want to give them away because our lives are kind of hard. We're going to take those, prison, those slaves back. And God says, that's it. Now it's not just going to be the Babylonians, but all the nations are going to be against you. I'm going to bring them back. I can bring back the Babylonians just as fast as I had them disappear from your gates. And so the word of Jeremiah is, I'm going to put you in the hand of your enemies, into the hand of those who seek your life, hand of the Babylonian king's army. They went back from you, but I'm going to command, and they will return to this city. They will fight against it, take it, burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Wow. You see, if we're just going to go to God when we're in trouble, there's a problem. And the problem is that trouble keeps coming back. And in the interim between when the trouble went away and the trouble comes back, God is evaluating your life. How are you living now that I have taken that trouble away? Do you trust me? Do you follow me? Do you have, want to have this intimate relationship? And he saw in Israel... that there wasn't a real genuineness in their desire to serve him. Just to get out of trouble. And when it appeared that it had worked, they went reverted right back to their sin. And God said, are you that foolish? I've just gotten done telling you all about the future. I'm living for the long term. I have a long term plan. Do you not think that I'm going to fall prey to an insincere repentance? No, I'm not going to be fooled, tricked in the least. And I'll bring them back and the judgment will come upon you. And so we have this stubborn rebellion. They know the truth. They even attempted for a short term to practice it. Um, <clears throat> didn't really like it. And I've heard people say, I tried Christian life, I didn't really like it. I'm like, 
Well, these guys tried. Oh, well, we tried obeying God. Didn't work out. I didn't care for that. Well, good luck with that. Live your consequences. And if you want to pass by the blessing of God to provoke him to greater anger and incite him to exercise that against you in judgment, okay, I just don't want to live too close to you and what happens to you. The Christian life is one that is filled with peace and joy, not because everything works out for us, but because we have intimacy with God and we can trust him to work everything out to our good in the end. And sometimes that means going through some fires in life. Sometimes that means having to get corrected along the way and adjust our attitude a little bit to remind us of who is God and who is not God. And so that is how we remove stubborn rebellion from our midst. It's not by just seeking means to get out of trouble, but seeking intimacy with our Creator. I want to know Him. I want Him to be my Father, my friend, so that when I stand before Him as judge, I feel free, if necessary, to go up and sit on His lap. movie Miracle on 31st Street, what comes into the courthouse to decide whether this man is actually Santa Claus or not? The prosecutor's son. Well, how do you deal with that as a father to prosecute or to interview or question your son when he's the defense's witness? I want permission to treat him hostily. You really going to treat your son with hostility? You're the prosecutor, and your son is actually witnessing for the defense. Do you treat him with hostility? No, because he's your son. And that is the perspective that we have in our relation with God. What is it that tears rebellion out of us is that we have a desire for an intimacy with God, and therefore I live to please him. I desire is the first longing of my heart when I wake up in the morning and is the, is the last passing thought as I drift into sleep at night. Did I please him today? Can I please him better tomorrow? How can I serve him? For he is the one who provides everything I need and I look forward to all that he has waiting for me in, at the end. He has my best in his heart, in his mind. Even when he's got me over his knee, spanking my bottom, he's got my best in his heart. And that's our view, our perspective. Now we have another example in the next chapter. And that's the Rechabites. Great group of people. Now we have, we have the negative example. Now we're going to have a positive example. Isn't that nice? We have both things. So, Jeremiah says, okay, um, send to the Rechabites, bring them into the whole clan. They're in Jerusalem, uh, which is a weird thing. The Rechabites aren't usually in cities. They don't dwell there. They live out in the plains and tents. They, 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 they are recluses almost. They, they're out there. They're, they're, they have their sheep. They have their goats. They, have their, their, they don't plant. They're, they're just nomads a little bit. Uh, but they're out there, and there's never any alcohol among them. There's no wine. They don't even plant. They don't even eat grapes, even if they're not fermented. They don't plant grapes to eat. None. So, they don't keep any of that. But they're in the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because there's Babylonian armies going through the countryside. So they've come to Jerusalem to get behind the walls for protection. And so, a weird thing. Here in Jerusalem, we have this whole section of the city with full of Rechabites. Kind of an odd thing to happen. But Jeremiah says, go send word to them that we want them all in the temple. We're going to take them into a, into a region, into a court, one of the courtyard areas. We're going to settle out there, and we're going to feed them wine. And, of course, they all come. They are, 
they come to the temple, not necessarily knowing what they're being brought there for, but I guess, did we do something wrong? You know, did we set up our tent in somebody's yard? They didn't like it? <laughs> Whatever. Here we are. And uh, Jeremiah gets out the bowls, gets out the cups, and pours out the wine and says, drink this. You brought us here to do that? No, we're not going to drink that. We are not going to drink that. Why not? Well, our forefather told us never to drink alcohol and that we were never to build a house and that we were never to plant vineyards. And to honor him, we never have and never will. And Jeremiah just smiles. And he looks around at the leaders of Jerusalem who are also in the room and says, huh, these people are honoring a human forefather to the point that it has defined, redefined, or defined their living. They won't live like you to honor a forefather. Not Rechab. They're called Rechabites, but it's actually Rechab's son, right? Jonadab or something like that. It's one of those weird names. Anyway, whoever Rechab's son was, Jonadab, yeah, Jonadab, the son of Rechab. So Jonadab had said, and, and, and this is kind of a Nazarite vow almost that he's taken, where no alcohol, um, we're not told well, they never cut their hair and things like that, but, but we certainly have these attributes laid out there, and now generations later, here are this whole group of people, and we say they're still living in honor of this forefather who said, do not consume wine. Don't even plant a vineyard. Don't build a house. Live in tents. And don't settle down in one place um, as a testimony of what you're trusting in, that you're trusting in the Lord. And that was really the foundation of it. Prove that you're trusting in the Lord by doing these things. And they have held true to it. And Jeremiah says, listen, we have these people in town right now. They're only in town because of the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are only here because you guys won't be like them towards God. If you would honor God like they've honored their forefather, we wouldn't have any of this trouble. And the Lord says, look, these descendants honor a forefather and live a life that most of you don't want to live. You say, oh, they don't get to drink wine. Oh, they don't have, to, they don't have permanent dwellings. No. And they carry on. And they actually are at the point of taking pride in their way of life. And honoring a forefather who served God and set forth these precepts for his family. Did he require it of every family? No, but he required it of his family. And he uh, challenged his children and thus his grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-grandchildren, live this way as a testimony. And they honored that forefather and they lived that way as a testimony. And I think every parent, every godly parent, tries to do that, tries to instill in their children we live this way as a way of pleasing God, a way of declaring something to those around us, that we are different, that we are uh, not the run-of-the-mill home. And so we strive to set that up. And, um, and it in our family, we have a little thing, well, this is a special place, and you can't expect to live elsewhere like you live here because this is, it's wrong of us to keep you here in this special place. And that's derived from a Disney movie old Disney movie, but um, we strive to make it. Here's a way of life that honors God, that has been a benefit to us as a family, and you would be wise, and I have not, on my deathbed, I'll probably tell all my kids, please live just like I do, you know, and then they'll have to, right, because I said on my deathbed. But they were honoring a forefather, and God says, have I not done more for you than one of your ancestors? Have I not done more for you? Have I not offered you more? Have I not delivered you? Didn't I do all this and yet you won't 
honor me. You'll honor a parent, a grandparent, a great-grandparent more than you'll honor me. Unless you think that God is against the Rechabites honoring their forefather, God gives them a special blessing at the end of the chapter. So it's not that God is against them honoring that. It's just that as a testimony to Israel, you should have all been honoring me with the diligence and the passion that these Rechabites were honoring their forefather, Jonadab, that he commanded, don't drink wine. They perform it to this day. They obey their father's commandment. It says in verse 14, but although I have spoken to you, rising up early, speaking to you, you did not obey. He gives a command, a whole line of children obey. God gives a command, and you think it's an options menu. No. He gives a command. If you want to honor God in your life, you do it the same way you would honor your father in life. You obey his commands. And these honorable men, these Rechabites, were honoring their forefather by obeying his command for generations. And God says, for that I'll bless you. And if God's going to bless the Rechabites for that kind of godly honoring of a forefather, what would he do to a people who decided to honor him all their lives and generationally? And this is the positive example. If we can do it to human forefathers, to our parents, why do we hesitate to do it to the Lord of hosts? To give him our complete allegiance. Why do you do that? Well, I'm a child of God. I honor God. I try to honor God. That's why I do this. Or don't do this. Why don't you do this? Because... I'm honoring, want to honor God in my life, and I don't see how that's going to honor him. In fact, I'm pretty sure it won't honor him. And I can take a huge swath out of the culture that we live in and say, what in all of that honors God? And I can extract it from my life as a declaration to who it is I'm living for. I'm not living for you. I'm not living for me. I'm not living for people I don't even know to think, well of me. I am living to please God and if that means I need to go out in a tent and not participate in some activity that you say makes you happy but seems that people are happy without it too um, then so be it. I'll do it. I'll do without. I'll do without a house. I'll do without the wine. I'll do without the vineyard. I'll do without. I'm willing to do that to honor God who says that you'll have a stronger testimony without that junk than with it. Get it out of your life. And again, I can start listing off things that we've chosen in our home to say this isn't going to be here. This isn't going to be a part of my life. This isn't going to be a part. This isn't going to happen. This we don't have in our home. We don't allow that. We don't do that. We don't say that. We don't act like that. That's not acceptable. And it's not because it's my preferences. It's because I can look at that and say, well, I don't see how that honors God. I don't see how that honors God. And I don't see how that honors God. And when we examine our engagement with culture and our deciding of what comes into our homes and into our lives, into our minds, we cannot be careful enough because it's so easy for us to become into the condition of the rest of the Jerusalemites instead of being like the Rechabites. The Rechabites say the only reason we're in town right now is because of the impending danger, but we don't really prefer this anymore. We have gotten to the point where we don't prefer what you all think are necessities. And there's come a point in my life that some of those things that other people prefer and live for, I'm like, gross. I don't want that in my life. 
let alone to live for it. To think that that's the highlight of your life. I'm like, I don't live for that. I don't even want that in my life. And you almost see it in the Rechabites. The only reason we're in town is because of that army out there. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, let alone drink your wine. Not a chance. And the only reason we're here is to reach them with the gospel, not to become like them, not to have them like us, not certainly to be comfortable in their world. And if you're comfortable in this world, there's something wrong in your relationship with God. You are not honoring him. If this world is more appealing than what God has in store for you, something is wrong in your relationship with God. And there is a facade of spirituality there like Israel that says, well, I'll obey God. And as soon as the trouble goes, well, I'm going to revert back to the way it was because I'm more comfortable with that. Oh, that there would be in our spirit of obeying God a no turning back song looping in our head. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm not going back. To honor the one who has given me life through the blood of Jesus Christ. I want to honor him. And that's why they call the believers at Antioch little Christ. Christians, little Christ. Because they just wanted to honor Christ. And they stuck out for it. No going back. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And thank you again for a powerful pair of examples of polar opposites among your people, Israel. And we see one that went from bad to worse in their case before you. And one that went from good to better in their place of blessing in your kingdom. Lord, we know that the choices are there before us. They confront us today of which group we would like to be a part of. And Lord, our prayer is certainly that you might continue to convict by your spirit that each one here, under the hearing of these words, this passage, might choose to honor you in their life faithfully for all their days no matter the cost, and never even conceiving of going back into a life that only brought misery, death, and judgment. And Lord, we pray you might work within our church similarly, that we as a body might pursue an intimate relationship with you to do things your way and not our own, not the world's, not what seems reasonable, but what produces a testimony to your glory, honor, and praise. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.